Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 64. Tsar Nicholas II loses his relationship with his people. Last episode, we recounted the disastrous war with Japan, which culminated in the annihilation of the Russian Navy at the Battle of the Tsushima Strait. Now faced with another humiliation, Tsar Nicholas II stared into the barrel of another calamity, the Revolution of 1905. The Treaty of Portsmouth was a success for the Russians, as Sergei Vite masterfully negotiated a brilliant surrender. The Japanese were frustrated by the negotiations, which favored their European adversaries. This mistreatment was to carry on in the minds of the Japanese and their psyche all the way into their entry into World War II. In Russia, during the war, things were going poorly. The news about the war, and in particular the Tsar's handling of it, was making the people more and more disenfranchised with their leader. If polls were available at the time, Nicholas II would have had a very poor showing. Few believed this man had what it took to be a Russian ruler. So, what created the social upheaval, upheaval of the Great Revolution of 1905, which of course laid the basis for the overthrow of the Russian monarchy in 1917? Two quotes come to mind that explains the sentiment for the Romanov reign at this time. The first is from Isaac Steinberg, and the second is from the Russian historian Florovsky. Quote, Russia at the dawn of the 20th century knew no more magic word than revolution. The idea of revolution was viewed with fear and hatred by the propertied classes of the population and was loved and revered by all who dreamed of liberty. To the Russians who longed for a new life, there was enchantment in the very sound of the word. Even as they conceived it, even as they pronounced the sacred words, long live the revolution, Russians felt obscurely that they were already halfway to liberation. The second quote goes, whereas actually the main weakness of the Russian monarchy of the imperial period consisted not at all in representing the interests of a minority restricted in this or that manner, but in the fact that it represented no one whatsoever. It has been argued that revolution was inevitable, but what made it so? In my own personal opinion, it was the rapid capitalistic movement in Russia. Now, in Russia, it moved incredibly fast, faster than most other countries. Industrialization created a strong middle class, not seen since the time of the Kievan Rus period, and the pre-Ivan the Terrible period in Novgorod. With the advent of a centralized autocracy, especially with the ascension of the Romanovs, the middle class was pushed to the side, ignored, and seething. When Alexander II installed his great reforms in the 1860s, the door was open to revolt. Alexander III thought he could shut the door, and he believed otherwise, but... The genie was out of the bottle. It would have happened whatever the situation, as the world's economy demanded change in Russia. Other uncontrollable issues fed the fervent dissatisfaction with the Tsar, beginning 
with the famine of 1891 to 1892. Political parties like the Constitutional Democratic Party, also known as the Cadets, were being formed. The Social Democrats, dominated by Marxists, came into being. Despite concerted efforts by the Tsarist regime to suppress the rebels, revolution was in the air. In 1903, the Social Democrats broke apart with one side led by the Mensheviks and the other side led by Vladimir Ulyanov, also known as Lenin, and the Bolsheviks. The events leading up to the starting point of the revolution were numerous. Disenchantment with working conditions in the newly created industrial plants was obvious. Middle-class dissatisfaction with their lack of a say in their government was another largely ignored faction. All over Russia, protests and strikes became more frequent. Then the Social Revolutionaries, another radical political organization, began a terrorist policy. The group, with a following in rural Russia as opposed to the Social Democrats, whose backing came from the cities and the industrial workers, well, the Social Revolutionaries formed the Battle Organization. They assassinated two ministers of the interior, Sipiagin and Piev, as well as Tsar Nicholas II's uncle and commander of the Moscow military region, Grand Duke Sergei. The government knew they were in trouble, so the Tsar appointed a more liberal-minded head minister for the time being, one Prince Dmitri Sviatopolk Mirsky. But this did little to quell the people's demand for reform. Quite the opposite. Greater demands for representative assemblies and civil reforms occurred. The loudest voices came from professional organizations, like the unions of doctors, lawyers, and teachers. By the end of 1904, with news of the terrible losses in the Russo-Japanese War spreading throughout the empire, Russia was a tinderbox of revolt, and the spark that lit the revolutionary fire was to be known as Bloody Sunday. Father George Gapon was the leader of a group in St. Petersburg known as the Assembly of Russian Factory Workers, which was organized secretly with support of the local police as a kind of counterbalance to the more radical socialist parties. Father Gapon organized a protest to take place on January 25, 1905, to petition the Tsar to improve working conditions and to institute civil reform. The massive demonstration of over 300,000 started out peacefully as they made their way to the Winter Palace with hopes of pleading their case to Nicholas II in person. What they didn't know was that the Tsar was not there, as he was in Tsarskoye Selo. Banners were carried proclaiming the workers' faithfulness to the Tsar, along with pictures of Nicholas and his family, along with other various religious icons. They were even singing, God Save the Tsar. Converging on the Winter Palace, the St. Petersburg police opened fire on the, on the peaceful crowd, killing an estimated 130 and wounding hundreds more although estimates from the Soviet regime unreliably put the death toll at 4,000. As Steinberg and Ryazanovsky put in their book, A History of Russia, quote, 
the massacre led to a great outburst of indignation in the country and gave another boost to the revolutionary movement. In particular, as many authorities assert, it meant a decisive break between the Tsar and those numerous workers who had until that bloody Sunday remained loyal to him. In short, Tsar Nicholas II lost his relationship with the people. By March, Nicholas was under increasing pressure to install a consultative assembly and invoke numerous religious reforms, including increased government tolerance, but nothing seemed to pacify the masses. Riots, strikes, demonstrations, and vandalism were carried out in the spring and summer when Nicholas published an imperial manifesto that would create an elective body, a council, a Duma. This, though, did not stop the strikes. Indeed, by October 20th, the most massive strike in human history began throughout Russia. Sergei Vite told the Tsar unless he granted the Duma true legislative power, Nicholas would lose his grip on power. On October 30, 1905, Nicholas II issued the October Manifesto, which made the Russian government a constitutional monarchy. The Tsar regretted this decision to the day he died. Looking back in time, had Nicholas embraced his decision and had truly shared power with the Duma, the world would have been a far different place than it would become. It is highly doubtful that the Bolsheviks would have come to power in the coming years, as the October Manifesto quelled the revolution, as many more of the more moderate members of society were satisfied. It is only the, what Nicholas did next that led to the breakdown of trust in him. Now, the radical segment was not enthralled with the manifesto, as they wanted nothing short of the abdication of the Tsar and the end of autocracy. They began to form councils, or Soviets, to continue on with the struggle. The government, now on more solid ground, having appeased the majority of the people, began to crack down on the more radical elements, arresting many members of the Soviets. Also, right-wing gangs were formed, who together with the police and army attacked liberals, Jews, and left-wing intellectuals. These black hundreds, as they were called, were fascist in nature and racist, as they stirred up long-held religious and ethnic hatreds throughout Russia. Firm in his conviction that he and he alone was God's choice to rule Russia, and that the Duma was an annoyance that he had been forced on him, Nicholas II made his most monumental of blunders to date when he put forth the fundamental laws of May 6, 1906. In it, he severely limited the abilities of the Duma to run the government. The Tsar kept the right to run the executive sector of the government, the armed forces control remained with him, as well as the role of guiding and making foreign policy. And, in the height of arrogance, he even went so far as to retain the title of autocrat. Included in the fundamental laws was the right of the Tsar to disband the Duma and veto any bill they passed. This, in effect, made the Duma a paper tiger with no real power at all. 
This also further strengthened the position of the radical left's position that called for the removal of the Tsar and all the Romanovs from any position of power. But because of the increased pressure from the police, they would have to do their planning outside of Russia. Lenin was forced to retreat to Europe along with many of his compatriots, like Zinoviev and Trotsky. The first Duma to be seated in 1906 was nothing like the one that the Tsar and his ministers expected. It was far more liberal. Of the 497 members, 184 were the left-leaning cadets, 124 from the left, 45 from the right, and 32 represented national or religious groups. 112 were of no particular leaning. Interestingly enough, neither the social revolutionaries nor the social democrats were involved in the election as they decided to boycott it because of the fundamental laws. This makeup of the Duma was totally unexpected by Nicholas, although it shouldn't have been, given their delusional beliefs that the people were still on their side. It isn't surprising. The Tsar was in a world of his own, which rarely reflected the reality of the real Russia. So with the makeup of the Duma, not to Nicholas II's liking, they couldn't work well together with behavior similar to the way the current United States Congress is behaving. Sorry to my non-U.S. listeners, but I had to add that zinger in. Nothing was accomplished as all sides dug in and refused any compromises. The Kazets, the most middle-of-the-road party and the strongest one, overplayed their position by basically objecting to the entirety of the fundamental laws, which, of course, was not going to be overturned. The biggest demand of this first Duma was the demand that private, church, and royal lands be redistributed to the peasants. This the Tsar would not stand for, even with fair compensation offered in return. Nicholas dissolved the first Duma 73 days after its formation, with nothing being accomplished. Shortly thereafter, 200 of the first Duma's members headed to the Finnish town of Vyborg to sign the Vyborg Manifesto, claiming that the dissolution was unconstitutional. This turned out to be a big mistake, as all members were arrested and sentenced to three months in prison and denied the ability to run for office in the future. When the second Duma was formed in 1907, many of the more influential members from the first were missing. Interestingly, even though the Tsar's government pressed harder to have the people elect a more conservative Duma, they only lowered the percentage of left-leaning members by 1% from 69 to 68. But the change in the makeup of the left changed dramatically. The more centrist cadets lost almost half of their 184 seats, down to only 99. The Social Democrats and Revolutionaries had gathered 64 and 20 seats respectively, as they now decided to jump into this election. After being seated on March 5, 1907, the Tsar, at the behest of his new Prime Minister, Peter Stolyepin, dissolved the Second Duma on June 16, 1907. Next episode, Stolyepin and Nicholas try to change the rules of who gets elected to the Duma, causing a further alienation and radicalization of the Russian people. But that wasn't the biggest mistake that Tsar and his government would take.
they would steer Russia into World War I, which would ultimately lead to the collapse of the Roman dynasty and the rise of the Soviet Union. Now for a reading from Russian history. It's part three of a three-part series on a uh, poem called an epic poem, the Rosiad by M. M. Kursakov from 1779. Those in rebellion rose against the evil magnates who would endeavor to increase the monarch's sternness and tried to keep his soul in constant agitation so that they could plunder Russia bare during the tempest. The princes Galinsky were both victims of this rising. One of them was slain by the insurrectionaries. The other managed to escape through cunningness. And from the throne began to rage with a new thundering, extending o'er the Tsar's bright house the cloud of vengeance. This power implacable did arm itself with lightning, and levied its blows at those men at those places, where truth did dare its mouth to open and speak plainly. To champions of games did go just compensation, while loyal sons, their eyes tear-filled, fell into silence. Losing the loveliness which once it could be proud of, and seeing all around it desolation, conflict, grief everywhere, and in the breast of Moscow illness, its borders jeopardized by bold hordes frequently raiding, a throne unsteady neath the shade of pomp and splendor, neath foreign rule the Don, the Dnieper, the Vienna, and Volga, and now expecting the approach of night eternal, Russia, her tear-filled eyes, raised to the very heavens. She raised her arms outstretched unto Heavenly Father, and kneeling humbly, did petition the Creator. She then made move to bear her bosom, faint and wounded, and with one hand did indicate all Moscow bloodied. The sea of evil poured about it with the other. She then commenced to sob, and not a word could utter. On rainbow dawns above the stars there sat supremely the mighty God who roars in thunders and in tempests, before whom light of day is like the very darkness, who animates all things and sets worlds into motion, who from the heavens looks upon all equally, forgives, treats tenderly, becomes yet fears not to chastise. A fire and water king, he knew the voice of Russia, and seeing the last hour of his children's glory, in one brief moment the days of their sorrow reckoned, and then determined to extend a hand of sustenance. The heavens up above suddenly grew brighter, a dew with power of restoration then descended, besprinkled lightly her unhappy breast and countenance, and in a moment's time the weary Russia strengthened. Upon this suddenly a red dawn cloaked the Northland, and angels peering at the earth through crystal doors did then compose upon their lyres celestial concert and sang of the beneficence now crowning Russia. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Don't forget to join us at the Russian Rulers Podcast Facebook Fan Club which has become a very lively place recently, and I want to thank everybody who chipped in with some great questions, uh, some suggestions, and some really interesting comments. So, as always, 
До свидания и спасибо большое.